Professor Adam Kuntz. You can find him at ctsfw.edu. And uh, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, you can find me at stpaulrockford.org. All you got to know is that we're both white guys and we're interested in a history of power. And that should either bother you tremendously or excite <laughs> you or perhaps – well, we're definitely – Alt thinkers, although I don't know that either of us are alt right, we're often alt wrong. Uh, we do babble on and try to bring you some basic facts that you can check from history and suggest that they might lead up to things that no one else is telling anybody, least of all that thing Jesus said to not tell anybody. But that's not necessarily what we're here to talk about today. We want to talk about how Socrates understands what Christian education better than Christians, and this is a tie-in yep. to a word I found this week in Greek, eusebeia, uh, the good shrinking. This is like the supernatural power of Socrates and Xenophon to become men among men, like the Nephilim yeah. walking among us, wizards, right? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's this idea that there is a there is a humbling nature to learning, uh, that the true great man must believe in something that is greater than himself. And, uh, you know, in our conversations about Nietzsche last week, uh, maybe leading to this a little bit, but it certainly also ties into where else we're going to go this week with education theory, uh, information theory, media ecology, which is kind of all the same thing, uh, and and then how it's all kind of too sexist to talk about these days, which presents a problem for us enlightened as we live amongst the barbarians. Yeah? Adam, what do you think today? What, what do you want to do? Um, yeah, so, I mean, when we talked about Dewey last time, I hope it didn't sound too much like, uh, you know, if you just understand what Dewey did wrong, you'll understand what's wrong with the world. But Dewey gets discussed because he's important for something that is fundamentally different about how people are educated and why they're educated today versus maybe the previous couple thousand years, uh, certainly in the West. Today, we think of education and, and people act like this is somehow, it, it, it irritates me how people think that the things that are happening today are somehow all some plan gone horribly awry. I tend to think that human beings actually do achieve the goals to which they set their minds, not all of them, but it's kind of like you will get done what you make time for. And the fact, yeah, go so, ahead. So Richard Weaver, Ideas Have Consequences, sort of yeah. a landmark mm -hmm. book in some circles. The mm -hmm. idea itself, I mean, I found the book stimulating, kind of. The title yeah. seems to be everything I, I need to know that right. ideas have consequences. Yeah. So whether or not someone was back there at some point saying, let's plan this catastrophe for the whole human species, yeah, there right. are ideas that were had that in fact led to that said catastrophe and this, that, or the other thing. I mean, so, right. so uh, right. you know, non-recyclable plastics being a large part of the last 50 years of um, the Western civilization's you know, productive cycle is an idea that had a consequence. Yeah. And now right. to go to the Green New Deal as a solution is an idea. That will have a consequence, not unlike Los Angeles, California power grid and, and on and on and on and on. So, right. yeah, Richard so, Weaver. It's just like, about Richard Weaver. Right. So with, with Weaver, with discussion of education, the idea that the things that are flourishing in higher education, if anything can be said to be flourishing right now, are things that, quote, get you a good job. They make money. People don't necessarily actually enjoy them, but they study them because they make money. Nobody's building opposite. a school of medicine so much as a school of pharmacy, right? Like school, of, yeah, school of pharmacy, or people become lots of people become even doctors, let's say, because of the money, right. not because of the their intrinsic interest in cancer or 
saving children or something. I mean, some certainly do. Medicine is a holdover from a time when education was not understood to have a primarily utilitarian value. What can I do with this? That was never really the idea. Because now, if you go, yeah, go ahead. I'm curious. So, so because modernism is often hand in hand linked with the pragmatic, mm-hmm. but you're kind of suggesting that modernism as an experiment didn't begin that way. Well, a lot of things that people go to school for right now, even as late as like say the 1920s, you couldn't, you wouldn't go to school for that, right? Like the first MBA doesn't exist until the early 20th century, and it's not widespread until well after the Second World War. So if you want to go into business, you're going to get, ed- and, and you need to be educated, which a lot of people didn't, right? I mean, a lot of people are starting major American companies with a high school degree. But if you want to go into business and you're educated, you're educated the same way everyone else is because of what we're going to talk about as the classical understanding of education. And that involved a curriculum of Greek, Latin, and math. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> old, right. old, dead white guys, maybe. Shemites? Jephthites, uh, we're not really sure what those guys are. But, yeah, mostly, most, yeah, pretty much entirely European. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but then, yeah. and then math, with <laughs> which is the thing, though. I mean, this is just it. Yeah. In a systemically racist system like the United States of America, even an idea like math and logic, because it is part of the system, is right. in fact a, a tool of violence and cannot be tolerated as truth until equality has been achieved for those who right. are oppressed. And if you say otherwise, you are in fact a Nazi and pro-Trump, which makes you doubly bad. I want to see the BLM protesters show up at the, the math PhD seminars at MIT or Caltech. I will know then that they're taking this seriously instead of just disrupting diners. But but that's just it. Isn't it supported by some <laughs> of the same minds? And that's the confusing thing to me. Or is it not? Or are on the campuses in the math departments, all the professors looking at it horror and saying, dear heavens, what have we wrought yeah. upon the earth? Well, I, I think I think that that is a debate currently going on within the natural sciences or hard sciences, which mathematics is part of. Because those are, those are, in a sense, more traditional ways of finding understanding in that they say there's something out there. There is a certain new way of understanding geometry, or there's a new way of understanding this ecosystem or this star system, and we have to find it because it's out there. I think something that comes to dominate both the university and people, people make fun of academia, they make fun of the university, and I, I completely understand why, believe me that doesn't make them unimportant. Hmm. Just because something is laughable doesn't mean it's necessarily unimportant. And in a decaying society, what is laughable will probably be what is most important. In the university Hmm. system, what is dominant are things that you could call maybe soft sciences or are called in English social sciences. And even that word social, as in social distancing, is a very squishy word. Uh, the French call them the human sciences, les sciences humaines. Is that also the root of socialism? Is it? Is it the same root word? Yeah, it all has to do. It's all. Sorry, there's I'm a just Latin being a word. Punk. I'm just being a punk. No, you're yeah. fine. No, you're well. No, you're fine. It's a Latin word that involves being an ally, a socius, and oh, it's therefore, in its nature, a squishy word. Like, who are my allies exactly and to what degree? So when you hear people use words like society, social, understand that that's already really kind of something that's like Plato. They can make that mean whatever they want. Because your allies kind of, I mean, like historically, I'm thinking, I'm thinking like feudalism. 
your ally mm-hmm. is not necessarily the guy you trust. No, right? like, no, like no. he's the guy you're going to kind of trust right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Cause right. you have yeah, to, yeah. he's your business yeah. partner, not your, not your brother. He didn't marry your no. sister. Oh, he married your sister. Now maybe he's actually not your enemy, but still not sure. <laughs> right. 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 And so, <laughs> what a world. so what's it, it's, it's, it's interesting that those, those disciplines. So things like economics, things like sociology, things like anthropology, those expand massively hmm. in the university. Um, Distinguish those from after... history. Is history is history a soft science? Yeah. So this is a good debate. History, I would say, can be practiced as what is called a liberal art, because before you have social sciences, the division is really just between the arts and the sciences. And the arts are things like history, poetry. Uh, go look up the nine muses. You know, in Greek and Roman. That's mythology. great stuff. This is great stuff. Yeah. And so included in that is mathematics and astronomy, right? This is the foundation of education classically. And by classically, I mean up until and after, in many countries, the First World War. So in the, in the scheme of history, not that long ago. What happens with social science and the reason it's squishy, but the reason it's so powerful is that it, it controls things like statistics, but not statistics about, say, how many stars are in the northern sky if you're at this latitude and this longitude, that would be a hard science. Social science contains things like who is most likely to be racist? Oh, I conducted a survey. Now I found out. Now we can target those people. Social science is really, really advantageous to power because it gives you data, not all of it wrong. I'm not saying it's all wrong. I'm saying it's squishy. It gives you data about human beings. Yeah, in real time. In real time. Uh, It makes me think of the movie, Tom Cruise movie, uh, Minority Report. I think Steven Spielberg directed it, where the guy is works with a supercomputer that's hooked up to human life brains that have been you know formed into computers in the future that can predict crime before it happens. And as a cop, his job is to go and basically execute the person before the serious crime takes place. And (laughs) the computer spits out his name one day, right? And it's like, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do? I'm the first one I'm not (laughs) supposed to kill myself, right? It's it's not a bad movie. It's okay. But the idea here is, again, making use of real-time information to pre-target enemies, yeah. And in some right. ways, I'm, I, I, am I, I don't know, are lizard people listening yet? I mean, isn't this kind of what Obama just sort of showed the power of in his last days in, in the White House? Didn't he sort of yeah. show how the combination of social science with big tech and government power allows right. one to, frankly, rule four years after leaving office in some ways? I, am I, right. so the, I mean, I mean, this this is really the power of of modern Silicon Valley. Is that not that it necessarily has built anything new in the same sense that, you know, I can say, oh, back in the day, Bethlehem Steel built the San Francisco Bay Bridge, Hmm. right? We we made it and then we installed it and that was that. Here's what we did, right? That's kind of a hard thing, right? Engineering is a hard science. I hope talking about (laughs) I hope so. Right. (laughs) I mean it could be. I hope it I hope it remains a hard Yes. Uh, our lives depend on engineering having nothing to do with whether or not a white man builds the road. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so or a black uh, man. I'm really okay with a black guy doing it. I mean, if right. he's the best guy for the job because he knows his stuff, do it, man. You get her done. Go for it. Right. Uh, it doesn't depend on nope. you know your your genetics. Nope. Uh, whether I'll, or not I'll pay you safe. more if you're better at it. Like I'm, I'm willing to pay more money if you're better at being an engineer. I don't care what color skin you have. I don't right. care. I'll pay you. I'll pay you more if you get the math right. 
Right, exactly. And so a, a social science, which is, which is, if you want to look at it this way, Facebook, for instance, which has, Ugh. is an enormous platform, Facebook, but also other social media function this way and Google functions this way in how it makes money from advertising because it knows it, it knows you, right? Facebook is like a, a, an enormous, you know, sociology or anthropology project. And then that can be monetized. So it observes human behavior. It builds conclusions on that basis, not in order to report them to other academics at the American Sociological Association, but in order to make money, which is maybe a smarter use of, of the observation. But that's, that's really what it's doing. It's not engaged in perfecting a specific art. Like I would say, if I know music and I know rhythm, and I know um, words, how to put words together, I will be perfecting poetry. Or if I know how to measure the movements of the stars and I know mathematics, I will be perfecting astronomy, right? So one kind of amazing new change in the world is the fact that education becomes not about what do I understand on the basis of what is, but what can I do with what I can collect, especially about other people. Right. So, so coming back to that utilitarianism and what can I do in just a moment, the question for me that came out of all that is like, if, if, if I can sell real information that is ultimate power to the highest bidder and all I yeah. care about is making money, who bought yeah. it 15 years ago quietly and, and what country <laughs> or I'm actually thinking this if I mean, there's a game called there's a number of Fallout games and in Fallout uh, New Vegas you have multiple endings and, and one of them you side with this guy named Caesar who's running his own new Roman Empire one of them you side with these other group yeah. one of them you side with the other group and then there's the the one that's the most finished quest everyone finishes it it's called No Gods No Generals you realize you're in a position to blow everybody up and win and you do right you just take it for yourself so you know Google's on it remains to me you know that the future world planet yeah. that is right. called Google uh, I think is is the biggest threat to humanity right now honestly and I don't think yeah. I'm, I don't think I'm out of the box to suggest it's a possibility. Okay, but we can move to utilitarianism, or maybe that's exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Is this a utilitarian okay, so, view? Huh? Yeah, I. They they might have other things in, in their minds. I think especially Silicon Valley has always pushed. I mean, California, to be honest, as kind of a harbinger of where Western civilization is trending. Uh, where it can't go any history. further to steal anymore, so it's falling yep. to the ocean on yep. its own. <laughs> California is where no. dreams are made, and it's also where they die. Um, California needs to be its own show. But the, another thing that needs to be its own show is what I was going to say, which is transhumanism. Mm. Is that mm. there, there, are, there are ideas more metaphysically impressive and interesting, if still horrendous, ideas that people have about what they can do with this knowledge. And I don't think it's purely a devotion to... I have the security guards, I have the estates, I have the jets. I don't think that's as pedestrian as it is for everybody. And you can tell this with, the, the I mean, this is a difference, let's say, between Peter Thiel, who obviously has his own ideas, mm. uh, gay libertarian ideas about the world, whereas Zuckerberg generally just says whatever is the most normal thing for people with blue checks next to their name on Twitter at that time, at that moment. Right. So Zuckerberg, I'm not sure is imaginative enough, but there are others who have an idea of what they could do with this power, this information, this wealth. You know, they, they, they have those ideas. They might be crazy, but they have them. I think that Google, Amazon, Facebook, places that they're trying to go, the reason that in some ways I am less concerned about them maybe than 
I should be, I don't know, you tell me, is because the thing they 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 currently lack something that Chinese companies that kind of mirror them because China has sort of built its own right. part of the internet. It's even building an alternative to the international banking transfer system that the US runs called SWIFT. So in that kind of alternate Chinese internet, you have state power in, around, and behind everything that they're doing. That right. those companies like like Weibo and Alibaba are doing, right? right. In the US, you obviously have that in parts of the state and parts of the sort of quasi-government apparatus, but we are not unified socially or politically or economically in the way that Chinese companies are unified with the Chinese state. Right. And so I don't think that Google or Amazon's or Facebook's power is as necessarily robust long-term as maybe it feels, because right now they, they have successfully herded like a vast majority of the American adult population onto their parts of the internet, that that could keep going. It doesn't have to keep going because yeah. it's the amount of capital that they can wield right now that they're doing through their child companies, where they're trying yeah. to create things like you know fish DNA brain computer interface stuff. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it, it's it's that space where. I think that they're talking hegemony and they're not just talking business anymore. And I don't think there's records yeah. of that. Why would yeah, there yeah. be? And you know what? If I was right. there, I'd be talking it too because I'd be looking at Trump and I'd be looking at Biden. And I'd be saying, <laughs> ah, we're only 20 years away from running it. Let's just keep going. You know, and, and uh, right. so uh, – but yeah. then again, how much is it the Zuckerberg utilitarian reality? And, and to, to kind of piggyback on that, I read an article in yeah. Wired – uh, a while back, a couple months ago, about Zuckerberg, and it would appear uh, he has that stare we've talked about before. Uh, it, yeah. It's yeah, even legit, called the Eye of Sauron. It's yeah, called the Eye of Sauron uh, when he would look yeah. at you. Right. Um, and, uh, right. you know, I don't know. He's the kind of guy I'd love to get a, a sit down with that guy just to be like, hey, dude, hey, dude, dude, I'm a pastor. So check it out. I, I'll put it under the seal. You can tell me anything, and I can't legally, like up yeah. to death, say it. Just tell me, please, anything. Just what, just yeah. open and go. <laughs> I want to know are the you, history. Are you now or have you ever been a lizard? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I want to know. Well, I want the dirt from the other side of the stories that became popularized about who stole what from who in college. That, right. that's, that's what I think right. would be interesting. And, you know, and, and, and frankly, um, really, I see him as a, as a unique duck in Silicon Valley because as much as he is just master utilitarianism, he takes stands against big tech that are in favor, I think, of information at times, uh, especially when dealing with the government. Now, at other times, it's the other way around, right? He, they're yeah. really, really hard to tell when they're going to make that call. It's because yeah. he does seem to have this uh, uh, analog style code that he follows and he will run it through. Well, which question do I answer first? And he comes up with some pretty different answers from, from say, yeah. Google that, again, is, is such a conglomerate now. It really isn't yeah. one person, I don't think, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, think, I think part of the reason for that and whether it's coming from Facebook itself or whether it's not, I mean, Google works very intensively, as does Amazon. Facebook does to some extent. Um, you have Lots of former Obama higher ups working at Facebook right now, hmm. and vice, I mean, it's there's a, there are pipe there are mutual pipelines. Let's say the the Silicon Valley to Washington pipeline. 
there are obviously different stances that are taken. Facebook is generally more politically restrictive than Twitter. Twitter is more restrictive than Gab, obviously. Hmm. Um, you know, stuff like that. I think the the issue long term for all of these things is that there are parallels to them, and part of the benefit of the way education used to function is that you were studying civilizations that, although they had descendants in Italians and Greeks, were themselves as civilizations as world powers essentially over, enduring influence from Greece and Rome, but no one's saying like, oh, what are the Athenians going to take their navy to next? Like, what island will they invade? Right, right. So you got like so a the locked value, picture of history that you can debate. You have a locked picture of over a very long time mm. with, relatively speaking, very good records. So one of the things that you can see is, for instance, democracies are, are just inherently more fragile, even when they're much, much wealthier than non-democratic states where power is both more transparent, but also depends less on goodwill. Hmm. So... In the case of the modern United States versus China, I don't say I'm not like a Sinophile. I'm not not that I'm not into, you know, Chinese Maoism. It is their agenda to rule the planet. I mean, and it's a religious <laughs> agenda. I mean, the stated it's we shouldn't pretend it's not like their goal. I mean, it's, it's what the state says. They are the future of humanity and all things are China. They're the oldest civilization ever, which is not really true. And and they want to pass that on as this, as this mythology. They're a counter narrative, no different than the U S I'm not saying that the U S is worse, but you know, if I'm not a Chinese citizen that believes in this mythology, it's not one I'm like real stoked about. Right. Like, okay. Dangerous. Yeah. So one thing in comparison and then one other thing about about how Marxist states behave overseas, which is very different from how we do. And the, the comparison is that we are more unstable because Facebook, Google, and Amazon, despite their massive power, especially political power because of their cash flow, immense power in a democracy, depend upon lots of other factors for I mean, just things like physical protection or security, right? So if let's say California becomes full-blown a third world country within the United States, which I mean- Kind of already is, uh, in a way, a little bit. Right, exactly, right. Uh, I mean, the mayor of Los Angeles is tweeting out, like it's it's almost 3 p.m., like literally, please turn off your AC. Like this is like the, the absolute state, right, of California 2020. Since that's happening, right, Google needs, they, they, they need their, it's not like all of this exists in quote, the cloud, right? There are physical data centers in places that have to be protected. If those become insecure, the whole thing becomes insecure. Skynet. So, Skynet. Oh my goodness. Okay. Go on. Go on. There you go. Yeah, maybe. But so I, I would say that however much temporary power or wealth, prosperity, a democratic entity or things within it have, I mean, the Athenians were just a lot wealthier than the Spartans, it's still more unstable politically. And that's not a value judgment. That's just, I think, a a fact of history. Democracies are simply more unstable because they rely on so many different factors to keep going. So anything that relies on the existence of that democracy is itself just that much more unstable. That's a comparison. The thing specifically about Marxism, Leninism, or Maoism, or any permutation of you know, a certain stream of German thought that gets loose in the world from the 19th century onward is this. And that is that it doesn't have to, despite <laughs> it, despite sort of how we're told things go, it doesn't have to convince people 
that what it's doing is always the morally right thing to do. And there is something in that that is different from when Americans invade another country, say, we have to convince people that what we're doing is actually best for them. Right. Because nationalism is like a bad word for at least right. half of us. Right. Right. And I think I think that's that's something with Americans specifically, but I think it also pertains to democracy. You know, you 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 don't you can't just wear the mask because you were told to. Yeah. I have to convince you that what I'm doing is for your health, for other people's health. The Christians tell each other it's because they love one another, whatever. But there's something that cannot just say it's because I said so. Whereas when Marxists, Leninists, Maoists invade another country, this happens with even even where they show up sort of like 1950s U.S. as military advisors, right? Like the East Germans, for instance, nobody remembers this. They were sent to Yemen to advise a communist insurgency there in the 70s. They would do things like whip the Yemenis when they were not doing, not drilling the way they wanted them to. <laughs> they were not at all squeamish about the exercise of power. There's something about democratic power and especially American power that makes democratic peoples and Americans very specifically really, really awkward about having power and telling you why and how they possess it. So how much of that is white guilt and how much of that is chivalry as a ghost haunting us? Yeah, I think I think some of it comes from, yes, our narrative about Europeans in history, which to some extent you know, Warsaw Pact countries also had, even without really hard, negligible non-white populations. But I think part of it is because of the nature of democratic power. Power in a democratic society, whether it's the local school board or whatever, is that if I'm there, I have to convince you that I'm doing it as your servant, as somebody who's helping you. And that is not necessarily bad entirely. But I'm saying that it gives huh. rise to a certain squeamishness that I think therefore necessarily leads to the desire to exercise control over other people without making it look that way, which is why social sciences are so important to modern democracies. So I would say then – so if, you really got me going on that one and, and I, I didn't finish the thought at all. The power is infinitely distributable. From a central source, its existence is there to be sent down and out to those who are below. Uh, and yet, in a a world like the one that we see, there is a a stumbling block to that happening amongst men, amongst humans, whether we came from monkeys or not. And the stumbling block is fear of the other. It's fear of the other one's going to kill me, right? And mm -hmm. it's it's a lack of trust. And so, rather than simply obey. There are uh, – there is a tendency among us to doubt, to question. And what Marxist countries have managed to do for, for hook – by hook, by crook, for better, for worse, is get people to give up the self-doubt with regard to that particular authority. Whereas Western Civ is sort of based on the idea that we can actually trust each other, that we can build toward that trust of each other. And, and so in that way, we take the time to have the conversation to convince each other – we're, we're good for each yeah. other. Does that make sense? But it's, yeah, it's yeah. a strength and a weakness at the same time. I also just don't think it was ever intended to to operate at scale. Ah, so intended whereas, or just can't. I mean, that's a math thing right there, right? Both. Yeah, both. Because 
give, give a counterexample and then we can come back to Western Civ because I think that makes it easier to see. When the Chinese, the Chinese are basically doing their own scramble for Africa right now, mm-hmm. right? So that's a fairly well known thing. It. Right, just buying it. A lot of that runs through Ethiopia. That's sort of China's gateway to Africa. And part of that is because Ethiopia is relatively high level of functioning as a country, at least right now. Mm-hmm. And so when the Chinese come somewhere, they just buy it up. And um, sometimes they employ local labor. A lot of times they don't. And they make no bones about it. They don't say, we're here to help you. We're here to bring you democracy. We're here to bring you equality, freedom, blah, 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 blah. They don't. They, just move in next just, door. Just move in next door. Take it, over. They're like, we're here to use this land as farmland, or we're here to get these resources or whatever. <laughs> That is a very non-Western. I mean, regardless of what you think about the course of European history, it is a matter of record that when whites colonized Africa in the 19th century, they thought that they were helping people. You don't have to agree that they were. You can think they were horribly evil. I'm just saying that's what they they told themselves. Right. 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 So so observe that distance, that that difference, not all of them, but that was the primary understanding in basically every case. It's the justification by which they're usually condemned at this point, right? So you, you look back right. and the hypocrisy yeah. is seen, but it is what they were saying. So you you got me going here too on how much of this is American salesmanship or or what's the overlap of the American always yeah. having been a okay. sale from the beginning, right. right? Go across that water, it's better, we swear. Right. So I think I think sales as a defining American genre of how we're interacting with each other is very powerful, goes very deep in our history, and plays into the fact, I think, there are, there are different ways of looking at this. You know, what, what, what was America? One, one way that, that the prevalence of sales in the United States would back up is that America was always a modern country. That is, it's always been a place that was a place that you needed to sell to other people, right? So you, you send letters back to England or Germany or whatever. And the letters say, if you come to, you know, New Jersey, your all your cattle will be fat and everything will be amazing. And there's no, there's no life. cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. Yeah. The, yeah. There you go. Right. Right. Exactly. That's all. So, I <laughs> there you go. Right, I feel so right. sad for my life. I really do. <laughs> so, so that, that has always been an element of America. I don't think it was the only element and I don't want to get too, I could talk about American history all day, every day. So it's essentially the idea of what it means to be America though. Right. I, I think it is part of it because again, I don't, I don't think the United States people obviously don't come here for all the same reasons, (laughs) not even within the same region, let alone between regions. I think that matters. I think part of the reason that, and and I, I was told by a friend whose parents came from, South Korea in the 80s, you know, America is just a big shopping mall. And, and I, I totally understood why he thought that. I completely disagreed with it from my own perspective. So the, the fact that America has so many different kinds of people and always has, so I'm not even, I'm not speaking even racially here, is, means that America has always been fragmentary and mm-hmm. it hasn't always been all about sales. I'm going to come back with, but e pluribus yeah. unum is like a sales pitch, right? And and you're just describing it, right? So he, here is this land that's utopian in its ambition for its belief in its own ability to set apart 
be set apart from the world. At one point, a religious fervor of Christianity. It's okay. Still now, a re- religious fervor of. I think they it shifted into like enlightenment, Western democracy, idealism. But now okay. we've we've lost that because it was spiritless, <laughs> right? Um, and we're shifting again. I, I, I'll stop before trying to prophesy. Um, but I'm just going to say that you know somehow, it, I'm not. I don't mean to say that the sales pitch is the only essence of America. Yeah. But I'm saying yeah. you can't have the whatever the essence of America is without this idea of sales somehow being fused in there. Uh, okay. That it is always, and that's why a democracy. Hey, how do you win someone from the other side of the aisle? It's maybe it's built into democracy. Is sales. So e pluribus unum originally simply refers to the fact that the colonies cooperated in order to gain independence. It's not hmm. it's not the sort of thing that I was taught in school based on Israel Zongwill's phrase, the melting pot, right. which Israel Zongwill never even came to America. So his you know, platform to speak probably shouldn't be that big. It was less high. safe for lizard people back then, I guess, or something, right? <laughs> um, so, 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 uh, the, I, a pluribus unum simply refers to the political reality that, that the colonies cooperated, the colonies of British North America. There, there is a counter narrative that doesn't get platformed partly because America becomes a fundamentally different place. We've talked about this before. I think when it becomes at least half non-British after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So like when Jefferson thinks about early America, one of his reasons, this this predates the Declaration, which if you look at it, has an enormous number of historical particularities nobody remembers now. He says, look, we were never a place where anyone had feudal title. Therefore, we have liberties that we Saxons, we Saxons, hmm. Anglo-Saxons have not had since before 1066. Hmm. It is a narrative about this place that is in total legal continuity and historical continuity with England before William the Conqueror. And he's just saying, look, America is just a new part of where the Angles and the Saxons live that is free the way the British Isles were for us before 1066. So that's a counter narrative that has to do with what you could call colonization in the, or, or emigration. When did he write that by the way? I'm curious. Where was this? This is, this is the early 1770s. This is before the declaration. Right. It's during the, yeah, I just want—I want to get the years so we can start our own like 1774 project or whatever for the, the you know. <laughs> right. Well, he would say this is the 1607 project. There you right? go. Let's do it. I'm all for the 1022 six... project. That's a better year. What was that? 1026. 1020... Yeah, yeah, 1066. yeah. 10, you know, 1044, 1044? whatever. It is and is the understanding that America is an extension of Anglo-Saxon migration. Charlemagne's empire rises from the ashes. So, so that. That narrative is, you know, w- what you were quoting from Fievel, uh <laughs> You knew it. Is, I didn't know if you'd know it. <laughs> no, I know. Great. I've I watched that movie. I was brainwashed enough as a child to know that. <laughs> is this sort of like Ellis Island perspective on America, which is shared by lots and lots and lots and lots of people, um, and is mostly what we're taught in school, or at least used to be, which was America's a melting pot. It's a place of opportunity, blah, 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 blah. That is not necessarily the narrative. I mean, that's kind of like Alexander Hamilton's understanding. Well, I mean, it, that's the, that's the Yankees right in the textbook after the Civil War, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, and now yeah. New York's perspective yeah. is well, the perspective of the of the country. 
and and everyone in that generation notes so it's really no accident that this is the figure that's revived by broadway and disney plus at this point everyone at the time in the 1770s notes hamilton only got here in 1772 he doesn't know what it is to be an american hmm. yeah and he's the one that so, causes all the all the issues, right? The, the federalist and the federalist debates are revolving around him. Standing army debate is he the one with the standing army debate too? No. He well he he is part of that. I mean, yeah, yeah, Hamilton, right, right. Hamilton is a very powerful intellect, and his vision of America is fundamentally based on the circulation of money, whereas Jefferson's vision of America, notably is based on the existence of farmers. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So the Federal Reserve had to eventually come up, I mean, at some point. But we'll, we'll just, <laughs> you know, and, and Andrew, I, I, was, yeah. I was preaching Andrew Jackson to my kids the other day. I'm like, I don't know much about this guy, but I know That's that he awesome. stopped the bank then, right? I, yep. don't, I don't know what yep. else he did. He could have been the worst yep. man in history. Like Donald Trump's, you know, like, like to the X degree, he stopped the bank that we had. I mean, and how much of his story, Adam, can we just go straight conspiracy? I mean, America has been uh, – the United sure. States has been an effort to have a country without a central bank was that. Yeah. That right. was really the, the agenda was can we can we keep the bankers from taking over? And we yeah. lost. It's over. That's done. We did. So now yeah. it's really a debate about what the new story about us is and who gets to control that story, recognizing that the TV can change that within a decade if you just give it the time. Like you just yeah. pump it long enough and everybody will forget the old story and the new story will be in. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we're we're debating whether or not maybe it's maybe the debate's over. Harriet Tubman is going to replace Andrew Jackson. Right. The kind of sick irony, not only of Jackson being on a Federal Reserve note already. I mean, right, I, I mean right. it's like whatever. Put Harriet Tubman on there. Old Hickory wouldn't want to be there in the first place. But the, the irony is that one of the weird things about American money is that unlike ancient money, where the guy who's actually in charge puts his face on the money. So you can hold them accountable. Yeah. In America, sure. the the head the, the head of the governors of the Federal Reserve or, you know, who's in charge of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City or Philadelphia or, or New York doesn't ever put his face on hardly anything. And you have to be a little bit of a finance geek as I am to know who Jerome Powell is. <laughs> right. Or Janet but Yellen. I, I or want ben to point Bernanke. out, though, so, so the putting the face on your coin yeah. is a, a demonstration of your trustworthiness because the coin is guaranteed to be, guaranteed to be not dross, right? It's, it's going to be real yeah. metal. And if you're right. printing with your face on it, bad metal, right. no one's going to trust you. You're, you're not going to have any baron listen to you, and you need them and, and if it, you're going to be a it's, king. Its value extends as far as your power extends. So you can find old Roman coins throughout the insides of the old Roman Empire. You can also find them beyond the Roman Empire because of the importance of the Roman Empire. Right, and um, I, I would contend that some of that importance was their ability to smelt and mint trustworthy yeah, yeah, totally. things. Yeah. The problem with the modern bank, based on Europe, well before the U.S., right, is you're not necessarily smelting and minting anything. At a certain point, you're just printing paper. Now, this does get into much later in the gold standard, and a lot of other debates we get into. Let's just leave yeah. it for today. At isn't it interesting how so much of this has been about? whether the bank could come around to to run the world, right? The, the World Bank or otherwise, what, Bank of America, I don't care. The idea is, right. uh, and this is, gets back in the Nassim Tlaib stuff, men trying to get enough control of the system to remove their risk from the system, blah, blah, blah. 
education is what yeah. we're really supposed to be talking about. And so I'm going <laughs> oh, yeah. to jump way back to you know, yeah, that's fine. Uh, what your notes were on hard science versus soft. I've chased a number of both today, but banking would be a hard science, right? There's there's no real concern about um, the color of your skin in terms of what your bank account says when you look at it, right? Right? Like if you're actually looking at the numbers, uh, the numbers are always the, the same. The means of building up your bank account are a matter of a combination of mathematics and quantitative finance, applied mathematics, it's usually called. Um, and that, that's actually how Taleb made his fortune. Right. Um, but that involves social science to the extent that it involves observations of human behavior. So attempting because, to marry, marry the two. Yes. Really. Because if you want to make money on things like day trading or the ups and downs of the market, you're going to use observations about human behavior. You're not necessarily going to use, you know, quantitative measures entirely because if you did that for, I mean, the, the rise of the, of the index fund with Jack Bogle and Vanguard in the beginning was basically, if you just track the market, you'll be fine. Right. right. Um, just, just give up on day trading altogether in any regard. Speculation and that's a contract Bogle says, what I do is investment and I'm doing essentially nothing. <laughs> uh, my, you know, my holdings just track the market. Speculation, you can only be successful there if you have some grasp of human behavior or if you have some knowledge of the market that other people don't have. Insider knowledge, what, right? Right, which is what people who work in finance basically understand. Like, that's the difference. That's why we're rich and they're not. And that's why if they really wanted you to be rich, the guy on TV would be making the money himself instead of telling you how to get rich. Right. And that's, I think, I mean, I don't, we don't have to chase off into investment strategies. What I find interesting about Talib's work particularly mm -hmm. is the way that the pursuit of asymmetry for my own, uh, my own needs, removing risk rather than being prepared mm -hmm. to simply endure, engage and navigate risk, which is a different thing. That the more that that happens in any system, the more fragile that system becomes, whether that becomes my own mourning or whether that is global bank discussions. And yeah, uh, yeah. this is a first principle he's got his finger on, and it's incredibly powerful. Now, for that reason, regardless of what he does with it in terms of, of, of trading on his own, yeah. uh, I think the idea is – I don't know. It is interesting. Is it soft science, hard science? I mean it's, it's similar to like this 80-20 concept, which is the bell curve, which shows up all over the place in human behavior in in yeah, nature right, behavior right. Yep. it just it's just always yep. there and and yet is so is that a hard science is that a soft science that it exists and then to go look for it everywhere assume it's going to be there right which then turned into really bad education policy like for 20 years of grading right because no one understood what it was talking about but the idea was not that you would try to make people fit in certain places but you should just expect you're going to have outliers on both sides you're going to have a big clump right. in the middle yeah what do you think? So by so, uh, right, I mean by soft science, we don't mean like unreal. Hmm. We mean that it besides things that are observable or measurable or surveyable or however you're collecting your data, we mean that there are there are a variety of things that make it squishy. So like to name some of them, that would be that human beings are unpredictable in their behavior right. to some extent uh, at various sizes. It would also be that you may not have measured the right people. Whereas if I'm saying, uh, go measure how tall that tree right over there is, 
that's you measured the right tree you got it it's exactly that tall right so what can be done therefore with the soft sciences is inherently more immediately powerful than with the hard sciences because if i start something within abstract geometry eventually i'm going to get to how that applies to like building a new weapon system for this specific jet but if i start with hey i observe that when people use the Robinhood app, they end up all buying the same stocks. <laughs> okay, now I know what I'm going to do because I don't need to get on the Robinhood app. I can just observe their behavior and act accordingly. Right, right. It reminds me of uh, James Altucher once had a, a weekly mailing about how you can track Warren Buffett's actual buys every week. They all get published like the day it happens. It happens at the same right. time. And you can just mirror it the entire time. It's, it's the biggest you know, fun that there is. Uh, I, I still have not taken it up. It's a little more work than I want to do. I'm happy with, with Wealthfront at the moment. But um, uh, pitch out there. Uh, again, then, so what's what's the goal here? In talking about hard science and soft science, it sounds to me like a little bit is to recognize that the marriage of the two in real time is tremendously powerful. Incredibly The soft science by itself is simply powerful in the the hands of liars as well because you can claim things and not have to wait for them to be tested, whereas the hard sciences tend to require testing uh, later. Now, maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, let me say this differently. It's not that you don't have to wait for it to be tested in the soft science, but the way that soft sciences are allowed to be powerful, powerful when including the soft science of media control means mm-hmm. that no one's paying attention long enough to bother to test much of what passes for social science today, much of what passes for history today. Uh, there is still some academia that in theory is watching it, but are you? Yeah. Are they? It seems that instead academia is tearing itself down and tearing the country down. Um, now, wandering again. Right. But- so, I mean, the the utility of soft sciences makes their truth value relatively less important than saying, yes, um, I have discovered a fundamentally new axiom within propositional logic. Because even if what I just described, which probably doesn't make any sense to most people and it doesn't need to, might be exciting and also just true regardless of who you are the utility of understanding you know well what do what do criminals in the state of nevada do when they're released from jail Hmm. that is of much greater immediate utility even if understanding the way logic functions is probably more ultimately satisfying for somebody who loves knowledge for its own sake this seems to connect again uh with the the 80 20 tail risk issue that that talib brings up in that those kinds of usage of statistics, what's the average person who gets out of jail in Nevada likely to do, right. uh, are are missing the tail usually in the gathering of the information. And this is where then the right. black swan comes in, right? And then that doesn't just happen once in a while. I mean this is where you have then what? Uh, the use of statistics to profile that leads to abuses, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. and, and it again – it seems to be connected to this pursuit of, of lack of risk. Maybe that doesn't really connect to quite how you were saying it, but it is. That's what utilitarian yeah. use of knowledge is, is. I'm trying to remove risk from my equations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that, that that relates to something and, and because you find risk, risk management usually within schools of business administration, hmm. right? Um, and the reason you do that is because, as we were talking about more like specifically with Google, Amazon, Facebook, the things that are most interested in endurance 
uh, at this point are not things like churches. They seem relatively naive about the observations of human behavior you can find within behavioral economics. Risk management is for entities that want to continue enduring and want to have as much possible control over those scenarios as they can. And that makes sense because they're trying to maximize profit. They have a much clearer sense of their own goals, generally speaking, than a lot of other organizations that should have a clear sense of their own goals like churches do. So risk management is what I'm going to, you know, I'm going to combine both quantitative analysis and also qualitative analysis of various kinds put it together and give you a sense as somebody who's leading that organization of what are the problems that you are likely to face based on your location, how many people you have, et cetera, in the next five years, next 10 years, next 100 years, so that you can continue enduring. This is the power, and I find um, kind of weird uh, French theory actually sort of helpful for understanding things like this. This is the power of capital as such, not hmm. capitalism as an ideology or a system, but capital as a goal for human organizations yeah. is that it is so it is such it is of such immediate appeal that or, that organizations centered around its pursuit and its accumulation behave more rationally and with greater forward thinking than organizations that are theoretically committed to things much bigger and more enduring than stock value. Uh, it, hence the name of the book that we're kind of dancing around skin in the game, right? It, yeah. it is really about whether or not you are invested for reals. And the right. fragility of the American Christian church system just demonstrates the lack of investment on the part of the individuals. Right. Exactly. You know? right. and, and, but that is not merely, I would say, a reflection of American Christianity. I would call that a reflection of American white culture, not being particularly invested in its former ideals and surfing the, what, entertainment sphere for, well... I'm going to I'm going to just segue straight into it because that was kind of the okay. next thing. So so media ecology, softer hard science, uh, a little of both I would say. Um what do you think? Media ecology as a science. Where do we put this thing? Media ecology is definitely a soft science in that it can observe, you know, I mean you could obviously do psychological experiments, direct observation of what are people watching? What are people clicking on? You could have this data even without having people in many cases at this point. Uh, thanks, Internet. Thanks, Google. However, it doesn't tell you what. And I think this is one of the failings of the soft sciences. And behind that, it's the failing of the humanities, which used to be, without a doubt, the queen of the university. Theology was at the top of that. But even below theology were things that are all what we now call humanities or mm -hmm. arts. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was that we understood, and we'll probably go here next time, we understood education not to be about utility, but about the cultivation of what you could translate as piety or a person's virtue or character or his soul. And because of that, his soul had to be shaped in certain ways, and it would be shaped by things like the arts. Um, it would be shaped by things like, you could now even include something like film. And so the fact that in America, uh, the arts that people consume most often are very, very much the products, not of the desire to express beauty per se, but they are at bottom the desire to make money uh, in both Hollywood and also sports entertainment, which is what I call professional sports. I don't call it sports. I call it sports entertainment. Um, I think everything is basically pro wrestling. Pro wrestling is just more upfront about that. 
you think? Uh, yeah. I, I I mean I'm I'm not saying like oh the uh uh the outcome was fake like that doesn't even really oh, they matter. they play the spread though they definitely yeah. play the spread why yeah. why wouldn't you I mean unless you had some sort of religion that told you that that was wrong to do right right exactly I yeah. have that not everyone does he says yeah. nor do I expect him to you know it's, it's the world we live in so um okay so so you 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 made the case that media ecology is a soft science. Right. Because of what it does or it, it studies the use of information to achieve certain ends and then it has to thereby observe those impacts on human conditions and those conditions yeah. vary because humans are always doing weird stuff and always changing their minds. Um, but I'm going to say that I think there is a there is a media ecology hard science. There are a set of first principles that have to do with communication as philosophy that m- – must kind of undergird your attempt to then go further into the various mediums by which this uh, um, epistemology exists, right? So, so the idea of yeah. media ecology is really an epistemological question. Oh okay. my gosh, with giant words, you know, how do we know yeah. what we know? But that's really what it is. Well, I, I, I'm fine with that. The case that I have been making, but not using these words all along, is that what we now call social sciences or soft sciences are essentially what the ancient Greeks would have called sophistry. That is, it's not that you have no knowledge. It's not that you don't know real things or can't achieve real effects. It is that you are not interested in those things for their own sake in the same, in the sense that maybe you could be a media ecologist and just be interested in the stuff for its own sake. You don't want to sell anything. You don't want to sell any books, but a sophist is somebody who knows things in order to sell them Hmm. in order to sell that knowledge either to somebody who needs it, like a ruler who needs to know how to speak better so he can control people, or in order to sell himself as a subject matter expert, right? Now, all that, all that, all that has a ring in that. your voice of being negative. Yeah, well, it certainly was for the ancient Greeks, yeah. Say more about that. It's, it's negative because the, the, the thing that they grasp so there's there's a concrete historical reality that sophists will pay, they will if if someone can pay the right amount they will give their knowledge to anybody see, yeah, even yeah, if the man bitter. is evil highest bidder yeah so yeah I guess and so. that so that's the concrete issue the abstract issue the kind of for all time issue is the question of why a person should seek knowledge or wisdom and that if I'm doing it for its utility, whether that's money or pleasure or sex or whatever, if I'm doing it for its utility, that corrupts it as an object. Right. If it's truly wisdom, it will be good in and of itself. In and of itself. Right, right. Which, interestingly, is one of the primary insights of, of Eastern Buddhism and mindfulness and the idea that the present is actually the only reality you have, something the West is very, very absent-minded about at this point. So fascinating there. I, I think I, – the note I wrote down because I didn't quite uh, throw it at you the way I wanted to. I agree with everything you've yeah. said. Is that I, I think there's a point right now where if, you, if we were to step back out of physics and math as academia has been looking at them – and start pressing them into some of the more epistemological – that would be humanities, I guess, philosophical questions. Yeah. We might yeah. find that there's more overlap or convergence happening than we thought, wherein the weird totally. behavior of quantum physics actually explains what we see happening here as opposed to us right. trying to go down there and explain it. Right. It explains us. And uh, we're not looking at physics that way. We're not looking at math that way. 
Maybe, maybe we are. We, I don't know. Maybe you find places we, where well, we are. We, uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is we did as recently as 100 years ago. Ah. That is, we still, in some regard, kept unified what has always been unified, whether it was in the Bible or in the Greeks, which is the pursuit of things now distinguished as the natural sciences, physics, math, biology, and philosophy and theology are all ultimately, even if it's a non-biblical civilization, the same thing. That right. is... Right. You're you're you are simply seeking wisdom per se. Yeah, you want you, to know you, how things work and why. You cannot exist and progress without belief in a higher power than your current state or self. Otherwise, you would have nothing to progress towards. And so you must believe it exists before you. And in that way, it is theology, whether you call it God or not. It doesn't matter. You know, it's right. a power. It's yeah. a higher power. Yeah. You know, your, your higher power is reason. Great. You know, it's still okay. And and that's a good thing. I'm not arguing that's bad. I, I I'm stating that we we need that. I think part of what we're saying is that the the mythology of every nation, every group of people, every family is about which of those higher powers do we trust to lead us through the present and that much of what we see going on in the fragmentation of America uh, is a lack of a unifying story or perhaps we might right. even say the intentional deconstruction of the preexistent story over the last 50 years by a philosophy called deconstructionism that's made its way into the schools and had quite an effect on things. Huh? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you have the amount of societal fragmentation that you do for a wide variety of reasons. I think chief of which, especially among our leaders in government, in the military, in business, in academia, is because their knowledge itself is fragmented. Their knowledge itself is not integrated. Their knowledge itself can never appear to be wisdom. It's always subject matter expertise. And this applies also within the church. When the knowledge is not integrated as wisdom, when it doesn't live next to each other and with each other, it remains merely my knowledge about this or that period of history or my knowledge about this ancient language or whatever, and otherwise the rest of life does not touch it. Therefore, it can't set anything aflame. It's a head it game. It cannot inspire. It's a cold, yeah. it's a cold and lifeless head game, uh, knowledge without heart, right? And you, need, you need both. Now, um, okay. In that, okay, maybe moving back to Eusebea, you mentioned yeah. the word character earlier. This is the word that got us started today. You know, the power yeah. of Socrates and Xenophon. Uh, St. Paul in the Bible references this as something to be contrasted with, uh, say, gymnasia, that is the physical training of the body. Um, yeah, working out. And, but yeah. he, he, I think many Christians would take this Eusebea as being just a, a whole to Christianity, but I, I don't think so. I think. Certainly, Christians should make use of this. It is the spiritual discipline of the human. And then, of course, Christians applying that would be doing that with Christianity. But this idea, yeah. as Socrates would explain it, or as Gandhi, I think, picked it up, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not, not convinced that Malcolm X didn't understand some of this stuff. Martin Luther King Jr. certainly did. Was that the—this again, Yusebea, the good shrinking of the person— Right? The, the ability of the person to see beyond his own sight, uh, yeah. to understand there are more than one higher power than himself and observe his place in that order is the greatest power an individual man can have over his own freedom pursuits in life, to be able to see further than his own nose, Eusebea. And you, character was the word you used earlier, and I think that's a nice yeah. English, really is a much better English than like piety or whatever. So I think it's like sensuality in, in, in one place. I mean, it's just like whatever. Bible translations, we but, can argue about it on another show. You know? Right. I mean, the the fundamental distinction is that uh, rather than pursuing knowledge in order to gain control, I pursue knowledge in order to understand 
in the same sense that there's a difference when you are younger and you think, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this other thing with my life. Later on, when you are older, you appreciate much more simply that things are, that you are alive, that your children or your grandchildren are with you, that you know, you're holding a, a baby. You just, uh, you appreciate the givenness of things more. And eusebeia predates Christianity as a word within Greek culture as an understanding that to be human and to be wise, to be human well, to do well at being human is to understand your place within an order, not to understand how things work so that you can control them and especially control other people. Right, right. To fit as opposed to to rule. And, and not that there's no ruling in the fitting, right? But but to right. see that the rule comes kind of native in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, yeah. The father doesn't and, have and, to try to exercise his authority. He, he can just right. act and they'll dolph. And, and even, even the ruler understands where he fits, right? Mm. The teacher understands that one day the disciple will eclipse him and he will die. The father understands that one day the son will bury him, right? And so to understand your place within that order is to be wise. Mm. Uh, to, to think that you somehow will escape that order, that you will become transhuman or trans anything else is fundamentally foolish and self-defeating. Well, say again, transhumanism has to be its own, its own thing. Because I... I, I... Right. I'm not above imagining the sci-fi potential dystopia where we actually have some of these guys walking around and we're kind of like not yeah. all wanting to join them. And they're like, but right. come inside the robot man with me. And they're like, mm, you know, it, not enough uh, total tangent, but um, not enough Doctor Who understanding. If there was more Doctor Who understanding, we would not be doing as many things as we do dangerously in this world that we live in. Can you tie Pastor Kuntz or uh, Doctor Kuntz? <laughs> Gu guilty, guilty as charged on the lack of Doctor yeah, Who understanding. I also have very little, but what little I've been exposed to shows me that it's like Nostradamus had nothing, right? Nostradamus had nothing on Doctor Who. So uh, can you tie to close in and kind of wrap it up from, you know, those who control us from far away to the use of revolutions as a means of letting us think they're not controlling us uh, okay. to the exposure, ex expanding of colonialism and the, the Western mythologies coming into uh, crassus, really, with the Chinese colonialism of the present, uh, the history of Albion seed in America, mm. uh, the Sputnik race, Dewey's revolutionizing of kind of the, the platform for education a hundred years ago, uh, and mm -hmm. Nietzsche's recognition that the man who simply wants to do it is the one who's going to continually win. How does hard, soft knowledge, science, uh, get us anywhere further in that discussion today? Okay. It gets us further because Nietzsche is the person who has the insight to be, I think, much more honest about human beings on the basis largely of his knowledge of the ancient world, of the classical world, the Greek and Roman world, to be more honest about human beings than generally uh, revolutionaries or social scientists are. That is, Nietzsche was not trying to tell you that you would become far more than you are unless you are a rather unusual human being. There are, most people are not Napoleon. Uh, most people are not Julius Caesar. Most people listen to them and follow their orders. And that's, that is the case. What, it, what we're talking about today ties into all of this because what you need to understand is that underneath politics, underneath culture, underneath um, financial machination, 
are fundamentally differing human philosophies in the ancient sense of the word, the love of wisdom. There are different sorts of wisdom and there are people who entirely lack a desire for wisdom and some of them have lots of money and lots of power. And that itself affects not only you, but it affects them too. And it affects the stability or the instability of human societies, of political entities. It really affects everything, what that person has set or failed to set his heart on. And that's why how you understand wisdom and how you're pursuing it, I think, matters more than anything. So you're saying that Cardi B being the choice for the Joe Biden interview may not have been the best call. Yeah, well, uh, it, it, it is a naked appeal. <laughs> of course, it's naked appeal. It's a naked appeal to the desire for popularity, which if you have any wisdom at all, you understand that the voice of the people is not the voice of God. So I would I want to say I'm with you on that, too. But like <laughs> where I'm at is that I think if you had any wisdom as Joe Biden or his handlers, you would have I mean, known, you, you would have known what you're better implying than, is that Joe Biden is not AI at this point. Yeah, no, no, his on. handlers, his handlers. Yeah. I mean, whoever's <laughs> setting this up had to yeah. know that that Cardi B could not possibly communicate with Joe in such a way as to convince other people who are not already white, white right. people uh, to vote for Joe, right? This is this is not mm -hmm. how you convince the black America to vote for, for Joe Biden. I don't think, I think it did so much damage to them. And it's just based on their lack of wisdom, their lack of perspective on their own platform. And, you know, I don't want them to get better. I, I'm glad with let them destroy themselves. But it, it just, it strikes me again, like, wouldn't you have wanted somebody who was really articulate and clever to make Joe look good all the time, no matter what? I mean, you'd need a real conversationalist. And I'm pretty sure Hollywood has a few. I'm pretty yeah. sure they do. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just yeah. call me nuts, but we'll just go yeah. with whatever's recently on the album charts. And we'll assume that the fact it's about sex, no one will notice. And when she gets in the fight with Candace Owens on Twitter that night and starts making like puppet shows of Candace Owens as a troll because she's so nervous. And now she's promoting Candace Owens rather than Joe Biden this week. I mean, really? Was yeah. that your plan, right. guys? Thanks. Yeah. Anyway, call me, call me crazy. Yeah. I watch this stuff way too much. Way too much. I Bring us home <laughs> to something valuable. <laughs> Well, you, you, you've educated me. I didn't know any of that. Um, Just the last two I, days. <laughs> I, think that, I think that what you can see is that when people lack wisdom, they also lack an understanding, and this happens constantly with Trump and the media, they lack an understanding of how human beings will behave. Hmm. Social science can only get you so far. Uh, polling data can only get you so far. You have to fundamentally reflect philosophically, that is, in a way that loves wisdom, about your own behavior and other people's behavior. And that cannot be done simply from experimentation or observation or you know government funding to do surveys. That has to come from thinking. And that's what we're trying to get everybody to do. Yeah. You said you have to reflect. Yeah. So inner life is the word secular concept. But hey, this is the modernist kind of accidental consequence, I think. In, in pursuing the humans are all gear shift cog minds ultimately agenda, we've moved along so fast and amplified our race toward prosperity so fast that there is no time for an inner life for most people right. and yeah, it's, right. it's beginning yeah. to show itself in health detriment, right? Physical yep. health detriment, uh, yep. poor sleep patterns included in this, but then also amplifying it and recognizing that, again, the ancient world 
pursued concepts like the inner life for more than just to be saved by Jesus, right? I mean, I mean, I like that part too, right? But, but, but the idea that humanity needs to reflect on what it heard, process what it heard, experience or saw, felt, right. and that family is the hugest part of this, to, to do that with people, to be among people, uh, those that are extensions of your body or your extensions of their body, your tribe. Um, that idea is something that I think is really worth pursuing too. I mean, I don't know how you get an inner life back into the West at all. I mean, it's just, we're just running on adrenaline and TV right now. Right. We're never going to yeah. stop. Yeah. I, I mean, it's to some extent an issue of technological consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also an issue of the pursuit of everything that if it were in finance would be called frothy, right? When stocks have uh, are absurdly overvalued, the market is frothy. Um, a lot of people spend their time thinking about things that are frothy, and then they are surprised when things that are not frothy, like death, are occurring in their lives. I mean, they're shocked that it's even there because they are so unaccustomed to anything substantial occurring right, right. in their lives. And how can people deal with anything substantial in life when they don't have time to reflect? Like you pointed out, it is media consumption. But when right. the medium is no longer a book but something that perhaps is as addictive as as heroin in its usage, namely a glowing flashing screen with pretty colors on it, it really can cause you to not realize how much you've not thought for a long, long time. And, and right. uh, I, you know, I encourage you, everybody, you're listening to the show because you do think. But you're also living in a world filled with people who don't think as much. Ah, this is what you made me think about earlier. So I'm on a tangent here again. Like – one of the things that seemed to leap said in an interview a couple of months ago was that Trump's power is his language, and that's what the media don't understand. That every right. time people get angry about what he says, he's nonetheless playing up a certain base that gets bigger. And the more you send your complaints about him out there, the more they grow on that. And and he right. even Ben Shapiro will complain about how he's doing this all the time on Twitter. It's like, well, but see, the only people that are on Twitter are people that are following him because they like when he does that. And you know, you yeah. put it on national news, all you're gonna do is grab a few more people to follow him. You know? right. and, and he knows right. exactly what he's doing. So this then this connects to your Napoleon comment from earlier. Not everybody has the agenda to control what is around them with their words. Most people want to control what's around them. Not everyone has the agenda or the reflexive and reflective comprehension to do so. Trump does, and he's definitely doing this. If you're listening to the show, you probably kind of do as well. Uh, Our question, again, is always not how do you do it for evil, but how do you do it for good? Uh, Adam Coons teaches at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. And again, you can find me at stpaulrockford.org. Or you can send a comment, question. We don't have an email set up yet, but if you want to talk back at uh, A Brief History of Power with Two White Guys, Right now, you can go to redfist.com slash contact, and you can send an email there. We should hopefully have an actual email that you can you can send to in the near future. But uh, a little nice. maybe business to close up here, too. Tracking the numbers, uh, we're looking like on the on the podcast release, iTunes through Podbean, <clears throat> we, have, we have turned into the primary thing on that channel, which is great. It's a platform I was using nice. before for other things. There's still bonus content there, including my sermons, which, you know, if, if you're not here for that, just ignore that. There's a lot of people that get the, the podcast still – 
as a channel for that. I don't want to you know hurt their feelings, um, but this is all really good news. We're going to be here for a long time with a lot of topics to cover. So if you've heard what we've talked about, if you've taken some show notes and figured out how to pin the tail on the Antichrist, if you see all things more clearly than these two clearly racist and sexist, because we like math, white guys, please reach out to us. Let us know how we're doing. Or if you just want us to keep being crazy, uh, we'll do that too. Adam Coons, Jonathan Fist, signing off for this week. We'll